Hi, thank you for joining the Miko Pellet Hour. This is Miko Pellet, your host. And today I have the great pleasure and honor of interviewing my good friend Isa Amro from Hebron, Palestine. Many of you know Isa. Many of you heard him speak in Washington, D.C. and across the country. He's one of the most respected and indeed, I would say, one of the most effective and important um, activists, peace activists, human rights defenders in, in Palestine, operating in Palestine. And he's operating in probably one of the most difficult parts of Palestine, which is uh, the city of Hebron. He will tell you more about it, but I'll just suffice it to say that he always says that this is like, a, I believe you compared it to a laboratory of or a museum of apartheid, where you see the most, uh, you know, the most profound expression or the most uh, precise expression of um, of apartheid. And uh, before Issa begins, I want to point everybody out. I want to point out uh, last year, last March, Issa testified uh, in Geneva at the UN, in front of the UN Commission of Inquiry about the occupied territories and Israel. Um, and that testimony is available on, on YouTube, I believe. It's one of the most important statements I've heard anybody give about Palestine one of the most profound and important and detailed. And so I encourage everybody to go look it up. Again, it's called the um, the UN Commission of Inquiry on the Occupied Palestinian Territories and Israel, and it was in March in Geneva. Asa Amro, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. You're a very busy man. You do incredibly important work, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. Can you just tell me, tell the listeners, just about your day-to-day, -day. I know you posted the video earlier, just tell us about your day-to-day -to, -day to give an idea of what life is like for you right now in Hebron. Uh, you can see that we were living in jail since the Ibrahimi Mosque massacre in 1994. Restrictions, surveillance, checkpoints, closing streets. But after October 7th, the Israeli military and the Israeli settlers added many other layers of closure, uh, of uh, restrictions. And uh, the main layer is that the Israeli soldiers are making our life miserable. They really dehumanize us and they treat us as human animals. Every time we pass the checkpoints, we are humiliated, cursed, uh, uh, dehumanized, uh, you know, soldiers acting with full supremacy. They, they make you, they want to make you feel that you are their slave and they are just, you know, uh, trying to, uh, you know, destroy our dignity. You know, you add to all of that that they closed the streets, the markets, the shops, which was open. They closed it completely. Movement restrictions, social restriction, no visitors, no doctors, no craft person. It was before, but now it's not at all. Nobody, you know, have any, any, any real, uh, even the the life we used to in the last years. We are not living it now. For example, I passed four checkpoints to come to my house here. They did their best to take me out and to occupy it and to attack me and to attack everybody uh, who's coming to here. Nobody now is allowed to come to visit or to stay or to have any kind of activities. The schools you nobody, are closed. You mean no Palestinians in he from Hebron are allowed to come and visit you at your house? No Palestinians, uh, no Israeli activists, no uh, even international activists. Rarely, rarely they allow few well-known journalists to to come in to visit me or to visit the Palestinian families as well. So, you know, I just want to tell you what happened just uh, before the the interview. I was coming back home, and uh, I saw a Palestinian man with his child, fifteen years old child. And the soldier refused to let the son to enter to his house with his father. He told the father, you can go, but your son can't. That took the soldier 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And uh, the man refused, for sure, his son. So I intervened and I filmed that. And I, I made the selfie describing what's going on. And it was raining, Miko. It was raining, raining. Today it's raining in Hebron. 
and I became wet. He didn't care. Elders became wet. Everybody's waiting outside, and we have that problem at the checkpoint. So after 45 minutes, imagine to get into your house, which is a few meters from the checkpoint, it took you 45 minutes. My turn yeah. came. I went into the metal detector. I was checked. Then the soldier told me, delete the video to let you in. I told him, no, you will not delete my video. I did something legal. That took me another maybe one hour and 15 minutes to wait under the rain till uh, he allowed me to get into my house. Two hours under the rain, very wet, just for trying to show uh, what's going on at the checkpoint. I did it because I, I, I fed up of what's going on on the checkpoint and I was not able, Miko, to film it because filming it means maybe they will shoot me, they arrest me, they beat me up and because nobody's filming now because they don't want anybody to film. They arrested many people who were filming. They shoot at people who were filming the soldiers' human rights violations and aggression and, uh, uh, you know, them terrorizing Palestinians. And the majority of the soldiers at the checkpoints are Israeli settlers in an army uniform. So I know them and they know me and they know their community and they work hard to uh, really uh, make us feel the power gain that... They have more power than us. They are more important than us, and we are nothing. We don't give them that feeling. The families are really strong and patient, and they see their existence is resistance, and it is now. The existence in certain neighborhoods in Hebron is very, very important uh, uh, resistance. So the daily life that I go around in the community, I'm trying to help the Balthian families as I can, try to help journalists to come to write, but the American media, Miko, is disappointing me. I coordinate for them, and then they don't come. They're afraid to come. I don't want to mention how many, uh, you know, important media outlets they refuse to come in the last minute. That's why I told them, you are afraid of the Israeli soldiers. You are afraid of the Israeli settlers. So you don't report from the field. So you don't expose what's going on because you are afraid about your safety and you are afraid about you know, uh, what will happen to you from the Israelis, not from us. So, as, nobody, uh, so, nobody's, covering, so nobody's covering, nobody's reporting what is happening in Hebron. Really, it's uh, it's pure, pure, poor, poor coverage about what's going on in Hebron. People are under curfew until now. People uh, don't, you know, they, they, they have curfews uh, Friday, what's Saturdays, the on the what's, evening. Uh, it's what's the crazy. curfew? What, what is the curfew? What are the curfew? Curfew in the beginning of the war, we were not allowed. I was not allowed to leave this room, only the kitchen, and I was not allowed to go outside in the yard in this house. Not only me, the kids. Maybe I, I, I read, you know, I make myself busy, but about the kids, they were not able to go outside to play for months. You know, the kids in Hebron, you know, you visited Hebron, Miko, you will find kids playing in the streets. Now they are not playing in the streets. The kids are afraid. The kids are not allowed. The kids are attacked by the Israeli fanatic soldiers, you know, who really all with the guns. The settlers, they are all with uh, guns and they don't talk to you. They cook the gun, shoot in the air or shoot at you until you get in to the house. And you can't argue. House trade, uh, you know, treating people, you know, beating you up is like that, you know, you know, you know, hit you, kick you and. And, and you know what happened to me on October 7th when I was tortured for Tell 10 hours. Me. That was the worst experience. Hold on, just, just a second, Isa. Talk about, talk, about, talk about October the 7th. What happened? Can you describe it in detail what happened on, to you on October the 7th? It's really very hard to, to remember what happened to me on October 7th. But I will never forget and I will never forgive about what happened to me. It was the worst, worst experience in my life. And you've been arrested and you've been arrested and beaten and tortured many times. And you're saying this is even worse. No, I am I am the most Palestinian who was on the times of how many times I was arrested in Palestine. I was arrested many, many, many times because of my human rights work and nonviolent resistance. But this time, and I am used to that, you know, I know what is what are the procedures how to deal with the soldiers legally. And I know my rights. I know what's going on. I have people who call to ask about me. I have my lawyer. But this time, who blocked me from going to my house, 
were my Israeli settlers' neighbors, and they were in their army uniform. So they, they didn't allow me to come to my house, and they, they know who I am. And then I went around to come into my house, because my house is my life. It's very important to me. I reached the yard outside, around 10 to 15 soldiers. The majority of them are my neighbors, my settlers' neighbors, in an army uniform. We are talking about October 7th. And noontime, late morning. And they jumped on me, they hit me with their guns, then they handcuffed me, and they said that you are detained. Well, no reason. I didn't do anything, I didn't challenge them, I didn't push back, I didn't curse, nothing. I didn't say, I have video for that. Then they took me to the military base. I said, maybe they will, you know, have me for one hour, two hours, as normal, you know, handcuffed. Then they came and tied the plastic cups on my arms to the back, a chair, you know, very small chair, metal one. Then they blindfolded me. For the first time, uh, Miko, they gagged me. And one of them, one of the soldiers said, why you gag him? Do you, do you have uh, 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 permit permission? Yeah. And the soldier said, yes, from the commander. So the commander, the Israeli military commander in the military base gave a permission for the soldier to gag me. Then hitting me, kicking me, beating me up, very cold room in the air conditioning, spitting at me, taking selfies, videos. The settlers came, you know, humiliating me, saying bad things. Then the settler, you know, they, you know, I know whom I know. He said, "You see, you see what we can do to you," and they punched me in the face, hit, and a lot of bad words, uh, racist words about my ethnicity, about my 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 mother, my sisters. Uh, but, and then they sexually harassed me. I refused to say about to talk about it because it's not easy to talk that you were, you know, sexually harassed or attacked even by the soldiers. But when I saw that it's not only me, that many other Palestinian men and Palestinian women were sexually harassed by the Israeli soldiers, I said, no, now it's not me. It's about everybody. And you should expose what happened to me. One of them came to me and told me, Isa, you are my bitch. And came and put his gentles on my face and asked me to suck his dick. Two times. And another soldier put the gun on my head and said, count to 10, you will be killed now. And I had the feeling, it's my last moment. And something else very important, it was during the war, the first hours of the war. They were listening to music, rejoicing, happy, and all the soldiers in the military base either cursed or hit or spit at me all the time, for 10 hours completely. That's October 7th. Then they took me out to a military post outside the military base. And they said, Isa, you go home. I told them, how I go home? It's night, midnight. And I, I said to my, you know, I said, my, you know, I said, oh, okay. They want me to walk in the field now because it's fields. And they shoot me. That's it. And I was shaking from the cold. So I said I should die. This is what I die strong. So I told them, listen to me. I'm shaking not because I'm afraid. Bring me a jacket because I'm cold. They say, don't worry, don't worry, you will go home. And even one of them asked me why you are here. And told them, ask your soldiers. Then they sent me home and I was not allowed to leave the house here for one week. I stayed here and I don't have much food. I have kittens, they didn't have much food. And the soldiers were around uh, and then they, I went out, I get medication because I was really, really, really in pain of my uh, hands. And until now I have to make an operation. Uh, they, it did a damage to my nerve and I don't move my hand well from what happened to me in October 7th. And really, really, I, you know, I did few interviews about what happened to me in October 7th and usually I don't repeat it. Because it's really beyond any, and, and you know something, Miko, you know, I was pleasing them. I was begging them to release my hands. No one of them showed me mercy. And they were not suspecting that I am Hamas or supporting Hamas. They know my politics. 
All the soldiers who were in the military base and all the settlers in the military base, they know me well. They follow me from years and they know where I stand. I'm a non-violence activist. I meet Israeli uh, activists. I meet Jewish activists. I meet many people all, from all over the world. And my approach is peaceful, non-violence resistance to end the Israeli occupation and apartheid. They know that. And this is why I was attacked, not because of what happened in Gaza. For them, what happened in Gaza is an opportunity to implement their fanatic extreme ideology in the West Bank, to take it over, to displace the Palestinians, to kill any Palestinian who is speaking in behalf of the Palestinians. Did they succeed in shutting me off? Yes, I was not able to speak for weeks. I was very weak. I was really... Uh, you know, not uh, emotionally, I was not feeling well, to be very honest uh, with you. Then I came to the house. I tried to really make it secure for me. They evicted me from the house for having a journalist in the house for 16 days. They used my house and our center, which is the symbol of peace, the symbol of nonviolence resistance. The Israeli military and the Israeli settlers occupied it for 16 days. They damaged all the signs, the cameras, the furniture, the alarm system, uh, all of that. 16 days, I you know, I came back to the house after I went to court, found a lot of damages here. Then I came back, they wow. threatened me, they intimidated me, they came to the house, they searched it, they read it, and, and they stole my GoPro, they stole my cameras, and it's like that almost every day to scare you. Then they brought settler girls outside to protest and to chant to burn the house. I have the video for their I just want to remind the people, if anybody is joining us now, I'm speaking to, uh, you're listening to the Miko Pellet Hour, I'm speaking to a human rights defender and activist, uh, Isa Amru from Hebron, Palestine. Um, and um, he's probably, he's one of the most important, one of the most effective uh, human rights activists in Palestine. Many of you know him from his visits to Washington DC and to the US, and uh, we're spending the entire hour with uh, with him. Please go ahead, Asa, continue. So they they, they are working hard to uh, make it hard for me because their policy is they don't evict you directly from your house or your community, but they make it impossible for you to stay. So what they, are the- my main what are what so the the the, um, the curfew right now? What are the what are the rules? What are people allowed to do? Not allowed to do? What are people supposed to do? Uh, you don't know. It's the soldier who decides what's going on on the in his in his area in his space. I call it. Each soldier. Video. There's a video. I think I told you the other day that I think Al Jazeera made that's been going around. And they were saying people are allowed out of their homes one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening, and that's it. Is that still the case? Is it worse? It's it's still the case in many neighborhoods in Hebron that they are not allowed to leave their homes. And even sometimes they don't give them that hour. The soldier decides that it's militia. It's not an army. There is no real instructions what they do. It's They are reservists, and they are acting as militia, not as a military. Something else very important. Acre, Association for Civil Rights in Israel, it's an Israeli human rights organization, reached the army legal advisor. We got a letter from the army legal advisor. They said there is no curfew and there is no new restrictions in Hebrew. We, I have it. I have, and I went to the checkpoint with the families and we tried to show that we have a letter. The soldier said, we decide here. I need a hawk. You know, this is what the soldier tells you. I am the law. I am the one who's in charge now. And this is the reality, unfortunately. Uh, all the shops in, in the way of from Kriyat Arba to the Ibrahimi, most Palestinian shops, we're talking about maybe 100 shops are closed without military order, like that. Soldiers close them. And if the Palestinians try to open them, they beat up the Palestinians and they confiscate the, the, the keys. Uh, many roads are closed. My main entrance is closed without any military order. So how to bring in gas? How to bring in furniture? How to do, uh, you know, rehabilitation to the house? Because I, I was doing rehabilitation for uh, for the house. I passed now four checkpoints to reach the house. Four checkpoints. I was not passing any checkpoints from because I come from the the field and it was one checkpoint maybe if I come from Babel Zawi. Now 
four checkpoints to reach the house with passing Modi soldiers. You know what it means, Modi soldiers? So I will be under the mercy of his ideology. So if he really right-wing and strong and wants to, uh, to do something, detention, beating you up, sending you back. And this is the reality of the, the majority of the Palestinians. And the Palestinians are really terrified. The Palestinian people are really afraid now in the West Bank about what's going on. And this is a microcosm, what is happening in Hebron, of what's going on all over West Bank. West Bank is more fragmented, much more gates, much more closure. Road 60, rarely you see a Palestinian car driving because Palestinians are, are, uh, are afraid. Hebron, for example, has six entrances. Only one now is open. The rest is closed. So all Palestinians who want to come to Hebron, Al-Hul is closed, and all the other villages, South Bank, Hebron is closed. So the majority of the communities all over West Bank closed, isolated, fragmented, and settlers, they go wild, and they do whatever they want. They are building more and more settlements in Hebron. Now they are building settlements, uh, the, 32, the 31 units. They are building it, and the same in South Mount Hebron and all over. Uh, so all over so, so just a second. So just to kind of, you know, talk about one, one of the points you mentioned. So Hebron, people maybe don't know this. Hebron is, is perhaps the largest Palestinian city in Palestine, certainly the largest one in the West Bank. And you're saying that with about, what, over 200,000 people, right? And you're saying that the, the entrance to the city of Hebron is now basically closed. So the city of Hebron is now under closure, basically, except for one entrance. Is that what you're saying? Not only the city, not the city of Hebron, all over West Bank. So Hebron is completely sieged now, only one entrance with soldiers, and the majority of the time is closed. So people can't go leave the city or come into the city anyway? No universities, no schools, no jobs, no economy in the West Bank now. So this it is October, December, it's almost more than three months now. Yes, we are now more than three months. No jobs, no schools, no universities, nothing. And the settlers come and go free? The Israeli settlers... The settlers the settlers have live a normal life. They have parties, even Miko parties, and they dance and they celebrate. A few days ago, I next to my house here, uh, they had a wedding. You know, they they live their normal life, and they cry to the world that they are defending themselves. Let me ask you this: So, people are stuck in their homes. Their ability to go out is uh, limited. If they do go out. Since the city is under siege, there's really they they can't go shopping. The shops are closed. What about food? What about water? What about electricity? How do people survive? We are working on it. You know, it's the first time since my activism that I asked my friends to do fundraising to give Palestinian families aid, food for the children, gifts, sweets, shop, you know, chocolates. The first time. Now we are going on with an organization called Friends of Hebron uh, from the U.S. and with other partners. We are trying to collect collect money to give to the families, to the poor families. Not only in H2, by the way, in H1 as well. Because so people are in a very bad situation now. So people can go A lot to of the, people are in need now. So people can go to the website to donate. Yes, they can donate and uh, can, they can help a family in Hebron to stay and remain in this very, very hard time for the Palestinians. So this is friendsofhebron.org? Yes, friendsofhebron.org or .com. Friendsofhebron.org.com. And so the um, so where would where did the food come from? I mean, let's say people did have money. If the shops are closed, what do you do? It's uh, from local, uh, you know, uh, farmers and, you know, tomato... One kilo of tomato in Hebron, never been more than three shekels. Now, one kilo of tomato is 10 shekels, Miko. So a kilo is two, about two pounds, and it's uh, so about a dollar. About a dollar. No, three shekels is, uh, uh, 10 shekels is uh, two dollars and a half. Yeah. And it's very expensive for the families. Yeah, they're having that, yeah. Because there is no enough... Uh, Vegetables, because the majority of the vegetable was coming from Gaza to West Bank. So we try to help the families to remain, to stay, 
uh, and to really try not to give up. So the sense that the Israeli authorities are taking advantage of, of the, uh, on the one hand, they're, they're con continuing this, this slaughter, this massacre in Gaza. And while the world is watching that, then they have worsened conditions for Palestinians in other parts of the country. That's what you're saying. And the world is just yes. not watching so they can go ahead and yes. do that. Yes. Read every night, read to all over West Bank. All cities in the West Bank have read every night. And they arrest people. They arrested someone who I know. He's my friend from Dura, next to us here. And after they arrested him, they destroyed all the furniture of the house, the soldiers, and they, they, they sprayed Star of David on his house, on the, on the doors, on the walls, and in the neighborhoods. Soldiers. They arrest you from your house for posting Normal posts in solidarity with Gaza, not not, not incitement, not political posts. You, you maybe you, you write, I hope God saves Gaza. You they come in the night, they arrest you, they torture you, they beat you up for hours. Then they let you go ho back home, and they make your family afraid even to mention Gaza. So this is posting on social media. So that's restricted. Very restricted. Who writes on social media? The majority of the Palestinians write nothing on social media these days in related to, to anything. So there is a real oppression in the West Bank, not seen. I call it that there is unannounced war on the Palestinians in the West Bank, and there is unannounced displacement policy and ethnic cleansing in the West Bank by the Israelis in, 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 the, in the West Bank. This is what's going on. I can tell you that many families from Tal Rumeda and from the closed parts of H2 in Hebron left. Many, many families and communities from Area C left. Where did they go? Anywhere else. I know people went to Jordan. Hmm. What about the, what about H1? What about the larger part the, of, of Hebron outside of the old city? You walk in the market, it's almost empty of people because the majority of the towns and the villages around Hebron are closed. So no people come from outside. So just if people don't know, Hebron is divided into the, the kind of the more mo the modern Hebron, which is a big sprawling city with hustle bustle and stores and, you know, cars and people and so on. And then the H2 is uh, mostly the old city of Hebron, which is the part that the settlers have mostly taken over. So even the larger part, even the other part of the city is you're saying people are you don't see people anywhere. It's empty. It's almost empty in the streets, yes. And that, that is the case of all other Palestinian cities from Jenin to Hebron. And I hear this also the case in many of the cities in 1948 where the Palestinians are citizens of Israel. We need to take a break now. This is uh, Miko Pellet Hour. I'm Miko Pellet. I'm speaking to Isa Amra from Hebron, Palestine for the entire hour. We're going to take a little break. Uh, stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Miko Pellet Hour. I'm Miko Pellet. I'm speaking with Isa Amro, uh, a world-renowned activist and human rights defender who lives in Hebron, in the heart of the apartheid uh, state in, or the apartheid reality in Palestine. Um, so the since October the 7th, there's been widespread arrests and detention of Palestinians throughout all of Palestine. Can you talk about that? Yes, since October 7th, the Israeli government uh, gave orders to the Israeli uh, occupation forces to arrest Palestinians arbitrarily, randomly, like that. So around 5,000 Palestinians in the West Bank uh, were arrested since October uh, 7th, and the majority of them 5, were... 5,000, hold on. 5,000 were arrested since October 7th. More, more than 5,000 even uh, since October 7th. So that's, almost doubling, that's almost doubling the number of prisoners that were held before. Yes, and uh, the majority of them are kept in administrative detention. So yeah. one of our activists, his name is Mohammed Zrair, Hamouda Zrair, is in administrative detention now. Uh, many okay. journalists who are yeah. very close to us, uh, Mohammed Al-Atrash, who, who, who filmed our interview 
is in, in administrative detention. So many people are in, in administrative detention now in, in, in the West Bank because of uh, Israeli occupation, don't want journalists, activists to stay outside to speak or to document the human rights violations in the West Bank because they want to hide what's going on in the West Bank. On the other hand, they want to destroy our dignity and to torture Palestinians and to satisfy the Israeli uh, right-wing uh, people who are calling for that. So many, many people, and the situation in jail, by, that, by, by, by the way, Miko, it's very, very bad for the Palestinian prisoners. They are starving. They don't give them enough food. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Let me, let me just interrupt you for a second. So the the minister of national security is, is in charge of the jail, of the prisons, and that's Itamar Ben Gvir, who is a well-known terrorist who is a settler from Hebron, who you know well from his days in Hebron before he became a minister and a, and, and a VIP. And he it seems like he's taking his, his his hatred and his vengeance against the Palestinian prisoners and worsening conditions that were already pretty horrible against the Palestinian prisoners. So talk about that, please. Yes, he uh, he he gave orders not to give hot meals to the prisoners, not to feed them with meat, so no meat for uh, them, no hot bread. They should not eat hot bread at all. And uh, they- fresh, they, bread. fresh bread. They, yes, fresh bread. They don't give them, uh, you know, books, no books, no communication with their families at all no visit uh, for, for their families. Uh, Red Cross is not allowed to visit them. The majority of their lawyers are not allowed to, to visit them, uh, beating them a lot. You know, every day they are beaten, they are uh, tortured, they are, uh, you know, kept in uh, isolation. So the prisoners who were released, they all were weak, lost a lot of weight, and they were, you know, spending time in hospitals. So we're, talking, that, about, we're talking about, what, about... 11 or 12,000 prisoners who are being treated with this, this who are already in, in very harsh and, and, and horrifying conditions anyway, and visitations were rare and very difficult, and now you're saying it's even worse. It's even worse, and the prisoners are calling themselves, we are not prisoners anymore, we are hostages now, and they are really violating the international law and Geneva Convention of how they treat hostages. I see. And what is the conversation like? You know, people are talking about the next day, what's going to happen after Gaza, how this whole um, all new reality in Gaza and in Palestine is going to play out. What are people saying that you talk to in Palestine, in Hebron? What are people afraid of? What are they thinking? What are they looking? What do they think will happen? The Palestinians in the West Bank are afraid of another Nakba. They see 48 coming to them because of what's going uh, on. Explain, and they explain, are, explain, explain yeah. that a little more. Explain that a little bit more. What do you mean? What exactly are they afraid of? Yeah, they are afraid to be expelled, uh, transferred to Jordan. The Palestinians. Uh, and they, back. So the conversation, what we're hearing outside is that Israel is uh, wants to expel 2 million Palestinians from Gaza. So you're saying Palestinians in the West Bank as well are feeling that they are under threat of being expelled from the West Bank. This is the main conversation between people. And because they know that I know politics, whenever I walk to the street, they come, Isa, uh, can you tell us about, are they going to you know, transfer us to Jordan? Are they going to expel us to Jordan, force us leave to Jordan? This question, I they ask me when I walk in the street, maybe five, ten times a day. What do you say? No, <laughs> don't, don't, you know, I, I say that we, if, if they, they want to, to expel us, but we will not leave. This is what I say. I tell them that we will not be refugees again. We stay in our homes. We stay in our land. No way to be refugees again. This is what I tell them. Don't make, give them hope that we will leave. But like you say, they're, what they're doing is they're creating conditions that are so severe in order to create what they call voluntary immigration. That's really so. They make this situation unlivable in the hopes that people will just leave on their own. Do you think it's going to come to that? Do you think situation like, for example, in Hebron now, will be that severe that you'll see mass voluntary, quote-unquote, immigration out of Hebron? Who told you that it's new, this uh, voluntary immigration? No, not new, it's not new. This but is all. This yeah. is since 48, Amico. Yeah. But now officials talked about it. 
but yes. they are doing it since very long time. And during this war, they increased the conditions of making people think to leave. But it, it was going on since very long time. The policy is they don't evict you from your house. They don't evict you from your community. They don't evict you from West Bank, but they make it impossible for you to stay and remain. This is their policy. They don't want us to stay in our communities. And even keeping the PA, the Palestinian Authority, which is making our life harder, it's because of that. This is what they want us to do. This is why it's going on like that. And is there a point that you feel that people are going to be so desperate that they will leave? Uh, I can tell you that until now, people are really, uh, they learned the lesson from the Nakba. Uh, this is very important that Palestinians lived as refugees and they know what it means to be a refugee. So they say that we die in our communities and not to be refugees somewhere else. This is something very important. But maybe, you know, because pressure can make difference. So we need to work to expose those policies. We need to work to make it costly for the Israeli occupiers. So we protect the public here and the communities to stay and remain and to keep the hope for the future. This is something very say, important. You always say how important it is to uh, make it uh, costly. What do you mean by that? Making it costly to be creative to do certain concrete actions to make Israel accountable for its occupation and apartheid. Media, legal work, uh, community work, networking, uh, boycott, all of that. To be creative according to your uh, ability, to think about a routine in your life, to make the occupation costly on the occupiers. Media, make it costly. The international criminal court, make it costly. Talking to, to the Congress, make it costly. This show, this is radio show, make it costly for Israeli occupation because they lie a lot. And they don't want us to reach international audience, American audience, and Jewish audience. This is very important for them that we don't talk to the Jews about that Palestinians, you know, respect Jews and love Jews, but they don't love the occupiers. They don't want that. They want to be the ones who are saving Jews, which, which is very wrong. Israel is not saving Jews. Israeli governments are putting Jews in danger. We, the Palestinians, we want to save the Jews and live together with full equality and love and peace. This is what we want as Palestinians. We don't. We want a diversity. We want, you know, to be together with equality and justice and freedom. But we don't want them to be occupiers. So these voices overseas, all over the world, it should, it should reach everybody. This is what Israel is trying to uh, prevent. And this is how we can make it costly. If you're just joining us now, this is the Miko Pellet Hour. I'm Miko Pellet, and I'm speaking to Isa Amro, my good friend and uh, courageous activist from Hebron, the heart of Palestine, the heart of the occupation, the heart of the apartheid state. So I, I'm sure people are following the procedures that just began in The Hague, procedures regarding genocide and accusing Israel of, uh, of genocide in Gaza. Um, what are people thinking? What are people saying about that? Yes, uh, the people are very happy today. It's a happy day for the people to see Israel bring to court. And uh, it's uh, for me, it's a dream to see the Israeli leaders accountable according to the uh, principles and the morals of the international community and the international law. I want Netanyahu to be arrested by the International Criminal Court because he's a war criminal. The double standards of the international community is giving impunity until now to the Israeli war criminals. But I hope that the South Africa case will be the first. And then many other countries, and we see Belgium now, Spain, other countries join to make Israel accountable according to the international law for their war crimes and for everything they did to me as a Palestinian and everything they did to the Palestinian women to the Palestinian children and to the Palestinian identity and the Palestinian cause. They should not escape at all from accountability. So I want to see Netanyahu summoned to the International Criminal Court as they did with Putin quickly. It's the time now. It's the time to see Netanyahu behind bars in, in The Hague.
It's interesting. You always speak about the law. I think you know the law of the occupation more than anybody. And I've seen you interact with soldiers where they they violate the law and they do arrest somebody or do whatever they do. And you read them the law, you know, as it is, because you know it. I remember a couple of times you came to me with a piece of paper that uh, some uh, closed military zone or this or that to make sure it was signed, to make sure it was the date. I mean, you know, the letter of the law. And so it seems to me that you probably more than more than most people can appreciate the legal process that that is taking place right now. And um, if 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 this was to continue, and if this was to uh, you know to 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 bring about some serious results, what then? We should not only depend on the legal procedures. Any legal case without very strong public opinion, it will not work. So we need a public opinion, support, people to express their support to the court and to make Israel accountable and to do many other cases to support the lawyers. I receive a lot of messages now from lawyers from all over the world who want to really go to their own, own national courts in the US, in England, in, in France, to go after the Israeli double uh, citizen who are, you know, French and uh, and Israelis and who are violating, you know, the international law and they are killing or harassing or attacking Palestinians, especially the the settlers. So the legal battle is one of the battles which we use as Palestinians, so we can really make the occupation weaker until we get rid of it. But I, I say it again, it's not only to, you know, to be a van, you know, to clamp. We want people to do actions, concrete actions, and make fighting the occupation part of their daily routine to really make a real movement, because we need a movement uh, from all over the world. We can't do it, you know, in the occupation alone as Palestinians, because the occupation is supported by the taxpayers in the U.S. and many other you know, countries. So we need everybody to be with us so we can make unity among each other to be strong first as people in Palestine and pro-Palestinian cause and pro the international uh, law and make the other people, you know, occupiers and their supporters and apartheid apologists weaker. I think now we have we have really opportunity to do that and uh, we need to go on with it. This is what I, how I see it. This is something very, very important. Yes, and so the legal avenue as well, like you're saying, but we need more. We need more activism. We need more, uh, like you said, creative, creative minds coming together and figuring out how to make this uh, more and more costly. And it's interesting to hear that people, because I would think, just knowing Hebron and knowing you, and knowing the reality in Hebron, that Hebron would be a very good case as well to bring Israel to the ICJ for crimes against Palestinians and and the very the very crimes that are taking place, like you said, against you, but against Hebron and Palestinians. And Hebron is a community and as a city. The reality, and many of the settlers are citizens, are American citizens, are are national for are or dual dual citizens. And there's uh, I, I know there are campaigns by young American Jews who went to Jewish high schools, which are really Zionist high schools, where they get indoctrinated and where they have soldiers come and encourage them to come and join the IDF. And they're exposing just how strong that indoctrination and and the pull to and, and they bring what they call, you know, lone soldiers, soldiers who actually live overseas, but now they serve in the IDF and they have no family. So they come and encourage these kids to come, which is, of course, a violation of U.S. laws, a violation of many laws of many countries to recruit people from one country to serve in another army. So that would be that would be a really uh, another really important case. And hopefully this opens what is happening now in the ICJ with the genocide is is opening the doors. I don't know if you've been listening to the you know the the hearings today but the the connection for all, the entire 75 year history of israel to what is happening now is coming up a lot and so uh, hopefully this will this will uh we will see some of these um we will see some of these israeli politicians and generals um in prison i want to ask you um you know the 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 reality in which where you live 
is is very severe. You've got some of the worst, well-known Jewish terrorists as your neighbors, settlers who are violent and, and fanatic. And this is not new. This has been your life. This has been your reality for many years. And um, you are able to maintain the place, where, which is now your home, the Yas Center, where you live now. You are able to maintain activities there and uh, and uh, I'm just wondering, talk about that a little bit, about your experience, because you, your struggle is a daily struggle. It's not like from time to time you see an Israeli soldier or from time to time you see a settler. You are in the middle right between, and you're also on, in a space that they want to take. In other words, you're, where you exist now in Teromeda is, is a choice real estate. They want that house. They want that hill. And so your interactions with them are daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop. Talk about that just a little bit, this constant, constant, uh, you know, life with these people, with these violent, racist uh, people who are just really a few meters away from your home. And they see you all the time and you see them all the time. Yes. Even, you know, what? look to what I did to my window. I have blocks. Oh my God, those are cinder blocks, yeah? Cement blocks. Yeah, cement blocks to protect myself from their maybe bullets on the night. This is the situation, Miko, now. To to reach the point that to close my window with uh, cement blocks. Because the soldier is maybe 10 meters from here. So I, I hear the radio, the army radio. And uh, I live between them. They are illegally here. Because this is this house is older than, you know, all the settlements in in the West Bank, and uh, it's not easy, dude. I feel the supremacy. I feel how they think they are more important than me. I, I, you know, you know, they feel that they are the chosen people. They feel that I should, you know, accept that. They feel surprised when I talk to them about the law when I talk to them uh, about my rights, because they, they're surprised that a Palestinian dares to talk to them about rights, because they're not used to, they think they are the only ones they have they have rights, and they want to live in a quality life next to me on the expense of my basic human rights as a Palestinian. So they have 24-7 water. I have three once every three weeks, and all the community is, is is the same. We don't have any protection here. You see, I have cement. They don't every in their window. Talk about that. You have one every three weeks, what? Water. What do you mean? We don't have 24-7 water in our houses here. So the settlers who live a few meters from you have water supply all the time, and you get water supply every few weeks for a few hours. Yes. So we don't have... Enough water for shower. Palestinian, the Palestinians in the community, in the neighborhood, do not have a constant, reliable supply of water. You know how to do, how to distinguish a Palestinian house from a settler's house if you drive in the West Bank? From how? the tanks. If, if you see water tanks on the roof, that's a Palestinian house. Because the Palestinians, they collect the water on the tanks to have water... Uh, after they don't have water in the water pipes. This is and actually 1948 as well. You see the Palestinian towns, you see these water pipes. But wait a minute, how do they distinguish when they supply the water? Because the settlements are uh, it's a few, really like uh, not even across the street, they're like oh, right there. And the water goes one way all the time, but is stopped when it comes to the Palestinian homes. I mean, this is, they, this is kind of a... They distinguish by... by, by, by by their own water pipes. They have their own water system. And something else to the audience, it's the West Bank water. The water aquifers are in the West Bank and we, the Palestinians, are not allowed to dig or to collect the water. So Israeli government collect the water from the water aquifers. It's an Israeli company called Mikurot. And they don't sell us. They don't give us water. They sell it to us. More, It's more expensive. I pay more money than the settlers. And they don't give us the enough quantity. I'm talking about West Bank. They don't give us enough quantity of electricity as well. And we are not allowed to generate electricity as Palestinians. 
they sell us electricity and they don't give us enough quantity for agriculture, so for industry. So Palestinians have to buy the water, their own water from the Israeli authorities and they have to buy the electricity from the Israeli authorities. Authority. They and they don't sell us the amount we need. It's not according to our needs. So for example, in Hebron for electricity, we need 150 mega. They sell us 100. And water, water is even more, more, more severe. So people collect the water for a few hours. Much and... more severe the water. And to... in area C, you are not allowed to dig a well in your land. So if you dig a well in your land to collect water for your sheep and for your family, they come and demolish it. You know, one of the first orders that was given after the 1967 war, one of the first military orders was that the water belongs to Israel. The aquifers belongs to Israel. That was one of the first commands that was given by the army as soon as the they took the West Bank in 1967. So there's a water, because... electricity shortage. There's no one guaranteeing the safety, your safety or the safety of your, of, of your children, of Palestinian families. No one is guaranteeing your safety and security. Is that true? Yes, no one. I have no protection. And if you, uh, you know, file complaints to the Israeli army, 90 plus percent of the cases, they don't open the cases. I filed hundreds of complaints against Israeli soldiers and Israeli settlers. No results. No accountability. At all. So Impunity. So if they if they if they shoot somebody in Hebron or any other city really, then that's that. There's no there's no nowhere to go. The the settler who shot uh, the Palestinian in twenty in the beginning of the war, you know, when the settlers were going out and shot, he's going around now in the same area. It was videotaped. So this is, I think this this is, and we only have about a minute left, but this is something that I think is extremely important to, to stress that there is nobody talking about providing guarantees to the safety and security of Palestinians at all, anywhere in Palestine. So Palestinians' life is, is worthless. You can kill a Palestinian and, and, and there's no sense of safety or security that you, somebody in authority that you can go to, to ask to be protected. Is that right? No, there is no protection for the Palestinians from the Israeli soldiers or from the Israeli settlers, and Palestinians are not allowed to protect themselves as well. If I protect myself, I go to jail or I'm killed. Yeah. Well, we have to end it here. Isa Amro, it's uh, always, um, well, I don't know if the word pleasure is the right word, but it's good to see you. It's good to see you fighting and working. I just uh, take care of yourself. Stay in touch. Many, many people here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and across the country, really, ask about you, care about you, are with you in their spirit, 110%. Support you um, and um, wish you all the best. So thank you so much for your time, for your incredibly important work, for your friendship. And um, we will talk again soon. Thank, you, Thank you, Miko, and my love and my, my greeting to all my American friends. And I hope that they continue supporting the justice and uh, peace in Palestine. This was the Miko Pellet Hour. I'm Miko Pellet. Coming up, stay tuned. Soul Conversations right after the break. Uh, wait a minute.